Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. In the previous episode, I chatted with Simon Fadi about how the global collective of the permaculture movement functions as a transnational community of practice, built on a series of shared domains, practices and communal activities that bind together this otherwise diverse collection of people. This episode builds on that previous discussion. We drill down deeper into the politics of the people within the permaculture movement. And to do this, I'm joined by Dr. Terry Lay. Conjoint Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Newcastle. Terry's research explores food security and rural development, environmental politics and the global environmental crisis, and the philosophy of the humanist-realist perspective in sociological analysis. Terry's research and consultancy work has taken him to all kinds of places, from the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales to Africa and Indonesia. More importantly for our purposes, Terry is the author of the recently published book, The Politics of Permaculture, published by Pluto Press. We discussed the new book at length, exploring the different political visions and stratifications found within and across the permaculture movement. Other topics we discuss include the influence of Paolo Freire and Antonio Gramsci on Terry's permaculture thinking, as well as Terry's fieldwork in Africa and Southeast Asia. We also wade into the controversial topic of the divisions within the permaculture movement in grappling with the COVID pandemic with vaccinations and lockdowns. A quick plug before I get down to business with Terry. You can support the podcast by clicking the like or subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also financially support the production of the podcast by making a one-off monetary contribution of any amount via PayPal or you can become an Edge Dwellers Cafe subscriber on Patreon. See the show notes for details. And just a note on the Patreon page, I'm still fine-tuning the offerings for the Edge Dwellers Patreon community. So if there's anything you'd like to see offered for Patreon subscribers, please do get in touch with your suggestions. Since I can't afford a house in Melbourne, I'm going to settle in with a soy ice latte and some smashed av as I listen back on this episode. So grab your beverage of choice get comfortable, and enjoy my conversation with Terry Lay. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. Terry Lay, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Yeah, terrific. Thank you. Okay, so much to cover today. I'm really excited about this chat. But I would like to start with your book, and there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be one of the people who was one of the original reviewers of the book proposal with Pluto Press. So I've been waiting for this to come out for ages because I knew it was coming and I gave it a big recommendation when I sent the review in. So it's really exciting to see it finally in print. 
Yeah, yeah, no, and, and of course, I, I, I have to thank you for your endorsement of the proposal with Pluto because it, it meant a lot to me and it was extremely helpful in getting the book out there. I want to start with the recent interview you did with Permaculture Australia talking about the book. Oh, yeah. And there was an interesting quote in there where you said, permaculture's grassroots interventions are meant to prefigure what a permaculture system would be like if it was implemented through the whole society. And that quote caught my eye because one of the questions that animates me is, well, permaculture thinking and this kind of systems thinking feels so logical. Why isn't permaculture practice implemented through the whole society? Why doesn't everyone do permaculture? I think I'll start off by talking about agriculture and permaculture practice in agriculture. And and what I'd say about that is that permaculture is based on on the three ethics of permaculture, one which is caring for the earth. And it's like the market system is based upon competition between firms to gain market sales and to and to do that, they you know they they constantly want to cut the costs of everything that they're doing, and the, and the outcome of that is that they cut corners in terms of envir- environmental sustainability, and and these corners are being cut in order to to make a profit, and in a sense, like I mean, you've got a you've got a duopoly like with Coles and Woolworths and the supermarkets supplying food, they they're competing against each other. I mean, we saw this over the milk the milk issue and how much was should milk be charged, you know cost in Australia and so on. It's like there are whole, whole lots of things that go, go against the, the permaculture ethic of caring for the earth become necessary to the owners of agricultural enterprises, you know, whether that's marketing agricultural produce or packaging it or on the farm itself. For the most part, produce produced within the permaculture ethic, the first thing you've got, you've got to, do, to do really is to run your farm in sustainably. But then the second thing is, what, what about the issue of transporting using fossil fuels and packaging and, and cold storage and all of these things? And clearly, there's a whole lot about the way a sustainable agricultural provision could, would be organised in, in, in a post-market economy or a post-capitalist economy that is very hard to do in, in the present situation for, for um, market players, let's say. And that's why, you know, why permaculture is is a niche practice to a certain extent. I mean, there are even in in commercial agriculture, there are clearly aspects of of a sustainable agricultural practice that are in place. You know, like sowing clover in in a field to increase nitrogen content. It comes totally from the permaculture handbook, if you like. And you know, and there are organic farming enterprises that that are successful and and market into supermarkets and so on. And and so, so it's not as though it, it, there's there's this you know huge rigid division or anything, but certainly in a general sense, and and the more and the more extensive you want to create a sustainable practice, the more difficult it becomes within the framework of a market economy. The socioeconomic soil is not fertile for the planting of the permaculture flower. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Here we are in 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 Australia, where we could easily grow tea and coffee and sugar and you know, and all of these things. And we do this to a certain limited extent, but but a vast amount of, of those kind of obvious luxury items is supplied from the global south. The reason that that's done is because labor is so much cheaper in, in those countries. It's not because we, can, we, we couldn't actually supply those products in Australia sustainably. We could. One of the things that we discussed prior to the session was about how permaculture is defined. And you've got some issues with how permaculture is defined and how that prevents people, particularly from outside of the movement, 
actually understanding what permaculture is about. And that might be part of the issue as to why uptake might be a bit more limited than it otherwise could be. It's quite a danger that the permaculture movement is going to be overtaken by other movements which are much more clear-cut in, in the way they define themselves and much more transparent, if you like. And agroecology is the obvious candidate here where permaculture is concerned. And if we look at the history of the permaculture canon, you know, the, the, there are three major writings, if you like. The first one, Permaculture One, defines permaculture as sustainable agriculture using perennials. The second one, Mollison's book, has a bit of a bob both ways, but it defines it as one as sustainable agriculture. And secondly, as sort of, I think he says, human settlements and all, all the things necessary to live. That's an ambivalent definition in the sense that it r reminds people that it's about agriculture, just like with Permaculture One. This is a designer's manual, but, it, but then it goes on to broaden it a bit. But when you look at the actual ch chapters themselves, they're, they're almost exclusively about agriculture and there's a small nod to settlement design. I mean, you know, like 15% or 10% or something. It's not, it's not huge. But what we don't get is things like how to run a steelworks or how to make cement or how to run an electrical power system or, you know, obvious things which are not, which are not in fact in what permaculture people are doing. And now when we get to the third permaculture book, Principles and Pathways by David Holmgren, it's like suddenly the broader definition takes centre stage. And, and he makes this quite clear. There's a really interesting passage where he discusses these issues and he, he admits that, that the problem with the broader definition is that there's nothing to distinguish permaculture from the environmentalist movement taken as a whole if we use this broader definition. And he says, okay, the answer is permaculture is about system design. You know, it's a science of system design based on systems theory. And, and what I find about that is, well, well, well first of all, I, I think it's not transparent in the sense that what permaculture people are still doing and talking about in their own careers and practices. And I document this in the book from my interviews and, you know, vast years of experience in the movement. What they're actually doing is sustainable agriculture. And this is their main concern. And there's a small, smaller group, again, just reflecting what's in the books of people who are doing, you know, uh, earth building with cob or, you know, like in other words, settlement design. And this is what permaculture careers and practices are made of. And when you get the PDC, a large part of the PDC is about agricultural design. And it's like, I think, I think the problem is twofold in the sense that there are many aspects to how, why this is a problem. One is that it's not transparent. The second is what people come up against when they first ask, what is permaculture? is a definition that they can't really understand. You know, if you tell something, this is a science of system design for sustainability, most people will just look blankly at you. Not, not that it doesn't have a meaning. I mean, it does have a meaning, but it's like it's very difficult to follow on a, an initial encounter with it. And the other problem it brings up for me is that what ends up by happening is that a lot of permaculture people, because of this broad definition, they make the mistake of thinking permaculture is equivalent to the environmentalist movement. And that's wrong for a number of reasons. One is that there are a lot of other strands of the environmentalist movement that are not permaculture, and that if we want to move to a sustainable society, we've got to cooperate with and work with them. And the second problem with it is this, is that actually what's distinctive about permaculture as part of the environmentalist movement is not, not just that it does with, with agriculture, but has a particular take on the environmental crisis. You know, it's about degrowth. It's about, you know, that's the key thing, energy descent. Is, is central to the way permaculture interpret people interpret the environmental crisis. And there are other things that are more specific 
like the importance of perennials in, in agriculture, which runs through all of the per- permaculture practice, in, you know, in fact, even not, not to say that annuals aren't, aren't part of a permaculture design, but the, the importance of perennials is something distinctive in terms of the environmentalist movement as a whole about permaculture. And, oh, yeah, and decentralisation and ruralization are also central to the permacultural analysis of the environmental crisis. What permaculture people say is without the sort of cheap energy provided by fossil fuels, we cannot expect to live at long distances from where we produce our food. What does that imply? It implies that a lot of large, dense, packed cities are not sustainable, really. And so there's clearly not every permaculture person, and I found this in my interviews, accepts these three key ideas from permaculture. But what I, what I would be saying is if we want to look at what is distinctive about permaculture as part of the environmentalist movement, it's those things. Whereas when people talk about it, you know, what's distinctive about permaculture, they often run to the permaculture ethics. Well, we're part of the environmentalist movement that has these ethics. And I just go, excuse me, just look at any Green Party document. You'll see those ethics. They're not unique to permaculture at all. One of the issues, you know, talking about this vision for ruralization and localization, that's not necessarily helpful for people that currently live in big urban areas, and big urban centres and cities. Most people worry. live in urban environments around the world. Yeah. There's a limitation there. So, yeah, so Ro, Ro, uh, Moro addressed this question last night when I was talking to her and she goes, you know, you've got to realise that 70% of the world's population are going to live in cities and I'm going, well, I don't know if actually that'll happen. You know, they might all die first. You know, it's like it's, I'm not sure that that's actually sustainable even in the short run. But what I think about it is this is that what, what we need to do is recognise that permaculture is a program, a long-term program, which we can't implement all at once. And, and I see Retro Suburbia as, which I really love that book, you know, like I see it as a sort of, a set of instructions as to how to start moving in that direction while we're still living in suburbs, especially in the Australian context where, where suburbs are a real thing and sort of somewhat low-density suburbs are, are a reality. In inner, inner urban areas like in New York and so on, obviously what, what we should be working on is grabbing any site that's not being used and using it for community gardens. In the dense cities of the global south, we should be using permaculture in the same way in community gardens and in people's backyards, even if they're very small, you know, like we're talking Soweto or somewhere like that, you know, in South Africa. But what I'd also be saying is we have to realise that in the long term, we have to have a different kind of settlement pattern than the one we've got now. Oh, and, and the other thing I'd be saying is this, is that, yeah, there are also things that you can do as an urban dweller in sourcing your food from sustainable agriculture. And that doesn't solve the problem of fossil fuel transport, no, but it solves some of the problems of unsustainability in agriculture, which we have today. I should say this too. I mean, what I found in my interviewees was most of them don't have this perspective. You know, most of my interviewees from permaculture believe that cities can be made sustainable. I wouldn't want to be dogmatic about and say, oh, no, they can't, you know, like, Maybe they can. I wouldn't completely rule it out. But to be made sustainable, what they would have to do is everything we've just talked about, you know, like community gardens, backyard gardens and so on, they'd have to do that, golf course gardens, you know, edges of drain lines, all that. But they would also have to have some solution to the problem of transporting large amounts of cereal products and and animal protein, if you like, or, or vegetable protein, if you have that, sustainably. 
that's the real question for me is, is there a sustainable technology that we have available to do this? And I don't know. And the other problem, you know, what, what we also would have to solve is the problem of sewerage. I mean, clearly what we have now is a, a one-way track, you know, nutrients come out of the ground, they grow into plants, they come into the cities, and then they go into the bloody ocean. I mean, that's hopeless. So, so we'd have to have a situation where we collected stored sewerage, sent it back out to the countryside, composted it, you know, reused the nutrients and phosphorus and nitrogen, potassium and so on in, in agriculture. And like, in terms of the energy required for transport, I think that's a big ask. I'm not saying it's impossible, but we have that's what we'd have to be thinking about if we wanted to make cities sustainable. And I suppose I'd, say, I'd have to say that for my interviewees, the bulk of them are moving in that direction more than the ruralisation option, which I probably think is more likely. Yeah, it's such an interesting discussion. Cities, they might not be sustainable, but they're also not going anywhere either. Even if we have big migration patterns back out into regional areas, like you're still going to have larger urban concentrations. But the process of people leaving cities to go to smaller centres, even in the last year, like here in Melbourne, with a lot of people thought, stuff the lockdown, I'm getting out, I'm moving to the countryside. And now we've got housing crises in all of these smaller centres because local people have been priced out of the market by these people being the city. And so you've got these gentrification problems. There's a transition issue here about, okay, cities are problematic. But changing those settlement patterns, there's all kinds of difficulties in there, which are things that permaculture can address. You're right. This is part of a larger project that's going to take a long time. And I suppose what I'd say about that is that some of these problems are technological, which has been the ones I've been talking about. But some of them are related to the economic system. You know, when you talk about the impact of gentrification in the, in the countryside, and it's like, that's part of the way the capitalist system works in Australia, and, and it's got huge problems. I mean, you know, like house prices are, are ridiculous. And I have to say, so long as we continue with the capitalist market economy, the, the way it seems to be tending in the rich countries is towards a sort of a massive movement upwards. You know, the wealth is moving from the middle class, if you like, and from the affluent working class up into, into the elite. We're getting a refutalize, it's been called a refutalization of capitalism. And Piketty talks about that a lot. You know, um, I think, yeah, that, that, that's actually right. And this is a, a part, a pheno- an epiphenomenon of, of that process that he's talking about, the massive increase in house prices, the cost, you know, of buying a large block in Castlemaine now. And anyway, so, yeah, I don't really think, I mean, personally, you know, I, I don't think there's any solution to this without destroying the capitalist economic system and replacing it in some way or another. You've identified some of the different visions in the movement, but let's get to this specifically. So across your interviewees for your book, you identified four or five different visions or different camps within the permaculture movement. So in terms of my interviewees, what I say in the book, and this is in in a sense addressed to the left who don't really understand this about permaculture, but permaculture is in favour of system change. And they mean that permaculture means that quite seriously. Permaculture people do not believe the capitalist industrial system works and we need to replace it. In the canonical books, especially in Designer's Manual, Morrison's vision of what that might look like is spelled out in some detail. So now getting to the interviewees. So, okay, so the first one is like what's being called in sociology, ecological modernization theory. 
or sometimes it's called eco-modernism. These are slightly different but related ideas, which is that capitalism can adapt to sustainability. And, and what we need to do is kind of regulate capitalism a bit more f- effectively and come up with cheap solutions that are actually going to be profitable. What I'd say about that is it's only a minority of permaculture people who hold that viewpoint. And I suppose that corresponds to sections of the Green Party in Australia, for example. The next kind of idea, which is much more close to what Mollison talks about in the last chapters of the Designer's Manual, I think it's chapter 14, the famous chapter 14, I think it is. But anyway, it's a bioregional model. It it relates to Kirkpatrick's sale, and it fits with, um, say, Ted Trainer's visions of of a degrowth economy. In the classic bioregional model, as it's enunciated by Trainer and, and by Mollison, it's ruralization first, and secondly, it's bioregional government, and it's small ethical businesses and cooperatives with a fair amount of voluntary community work thrown in. That's the vision, and, and so it's like locally controlled, at, the, at least at the level of the bioregion, by a strong democratic local government which prevents any sort of capitalist successes from getting out of control and, and makes sure that businesses really are ethical. If I wanted to recommend anyone to read about this idea, I'd go to Ted Trainer definitely. You know, like it's not the most popular view that I'm getting from permaculture interviewees, but it's probably the second most. You know, it's pretty well up there, right? And in some cases, like say Andrew Faust from New York, he he doesn't talk about ruralization at all. He's talking about New York and its bioregion. You know, so he still thinks that the city's sustainable, but only in complementarity with the bio, with the bioregion and, and but bioregional governance bioregional energy and transport provision he sees as all absolutely essential for a permaculture sustainable future yeah and and that would be he, he's like a paradigm case of how this view is represented in my interviews the next one which i think was incredibly common and like I'd, I'd nominate this as the most common view and i think that reflects its strength in the environmentalist movement as a whole and it really relates back to, to Herman Daly's zero growth economy or, you know, um, steady state economy ideas. But really, most people don't even know that. Or if they do, it just comes up in a phrase here and there. You know, we need to move to zero growth or we need a steady state, more of a steady state economy or something. And like what this means is I call this radical reformism because what it means is that we've still got a market economy and wage labour is the dominant economic form. And somewhat similar to the bioregional model in that we've got ethical businesses and cooperatives and voluntary sector that's important and so on. All of that part's similar. But what's different is that the idea that there's a, a, probably a national government which heavily regulates environmental stuff through things like a carbon tax, you know, like Lockie from Newcastle goes, a carbon tax, Julia Gillard's carbon tax was a good way to go, you know, to start this process of what we need. And it's like that comes directly out of Dali, that sort of idea of taxes on resources as a way of reining in the market economy and so on. And there's a whole lot of things like the universal basic income, shortening the working week, taxing the rich so that there's not too much of an income gap. All of these ideas are very typical of radical reformism in its various iterations. And there are so many books that are radical reformists, you know, like Kate Rayworth, the Donut Economics book, and um, Paul Gilding, The Great Disruption, and Richard Heinberg. You know, like it's a very common view and, and, and more kind of Marxist commentators on my, my stuff have gone, 
how can you amalgamate all these views together? They're in contradiction. The economics doesn't work. You know, this, this part of the economics contradicts this part, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And all I'm saying about that is it's a, a cluster of ideas that, not, that are put together quite often. Okay, so that's that's the dominant view in the permaculture movement at the moment, and it's so, and the same in the environmentalist movement. If we're talking about the activist environmentalist movement, and then the last one, the, the smallest minority, is the socialists and anarchists, right? So I, I lump them together because basically they they go the market economy doesn't work, and we we need a different kind of economy. I, I mean, democratic socialists envisage. The nationalisation of a lot of industry, they envisage that in combination with turning those industries into sort of semi-cooperatives heavily regulated by the state, da-da-da. The anarchist uh, viewpoint, which I kind of see as distinctive, is a gift economy view in which there's no money and no state and, you know, voluntary cooperatives become the dominant economic form rather than, you know, a subsidiary economic form or whatever. Yeah, and as I say, say in the book, like out of all of my interviewees, there's only two or three who are like that. And that absolutely reflects what, what I find when I go to permaculture conferences as well. I will run into an anarchist every now and again. I'm not saying there aren't any uh, or a socialist, but they're, they're rare. So, yeah, that's it. You know, like these are the different options. I found it quite interesting to, you know, work through that and discover that in a way. I wasn't, when I started that investigation, I didn't know what the outcome would be. Yeah, I see those categories reflected across the people that I've interviewed around the world as well. Did you see any geographic correlation between where people were across the world or within countries as to what kind of approach that they would favour? It's much too small a sample to make that kind of comment, I feel. You know, that's how I I suppose I'd reply to that. The eco-modernist perspective was coming mainly from IDEP, you know, in Bali. And and I and I you know I could give an explanation of that in terms of the fact that anything more radical seems drastically impossible in the in the context of Indonesian politics at the moment. So no wonder they're thinking that. But you know I I don't know. I mean in terms of my African interviewees, I I, I think bioregional um, village and market economy, probably village market bioregionalism would probably be quite a likely thing. But in general, no, no, I don't think there's that much. You know, I think these tendencies are pretty well global and what their their distribution in the permaculture movement reflects the global environmentalist movement taken as a whole and it's not that different between different countries and and the other thing I'd be saying about that in relationship to that is that as you know I talk about in the book I mean permaculture tends to be a a middle class movement not not that everyone in permaculture is from the middle class clearly they're not and there's been some amazingly successful projects conducted with peasants you know like well People don't like that term. It's an, as an anthropologist, I'm using it not, not you know not in a pejorative sense, but yeah, with poor, poor rural farm smallholders, let's say. But at the same time, yeah, if if you're interviewing people and kind of and they're talking in English to you and and you're discussing it with them, they probably come from the middle class, even if you're in a developing country. So these tr- trends in the environmentalist movement are, are global. Yeah, it's interesting. There does appear to be a class system. To borrow that phrase, in a not entirely Marxist way, but when I went to the the IPC in India back in 2017, there was a clear stratification. Most of the the paid attendees, clearly middle class from the global north, with a, a few people, local people who were involved in that orbit, who were people of means. Yeah. Then you had 
the group of mostly younger people, also from predominantly global north countries, who were there as volunteers. Yeah. And so who got there on the cheap and paid their way by doing labour to help run the conference. And then there was a few people who were brought in to represent local peasant farmers from Telangana hmm. and surrounding areas of India. They were brought in to try and give it a flavour of what was going on on the ground in terms of traditional knowledge system. Yeah, that's right. But it seemed there was a disconnect there. And so there was just this interesting stratification that was really obvious just in the attendees of the conference. And it seems to reflect this idea that permaculture, by and large, is a, a middle-class movement that has barriers to entry, uh, particularly for people who lack means. Let me talk about the, the, the African conference in 2009 in Malawi. I mean, clearly I, I met the, the Chukukwa uh, Ecological Community Trust, you know, people there at, at that time that became the, when I went with my sister to do the film, the, the Chukukwa Project, and met more of them. And, and it's like who came, who came from that group to represent them at the conference? Of the people who were there, or well, there was obviously Ellie and Uli, who were from a German background and thoroughly middle class, but had been living in the villages for ages. And then, and then there was Philetus, who was, a, who was originally a local high school teacher, and Chester, who had been the primary school principal. And both of these people were now employed by the project, but they were local people, to, local to the project itself, to that rural area. And then there was Julius Petey. Now, Julius is, is completely from, the, from that peasant class background. You know, he was taken up by the project in a sense he became middle class through being educated in the project. I mean, I, I would nominate him now as a middle class African, but at the time when he first encountered the project, he was a local smallholder farmer, you know. like. But then when you go to the Chikuku project and then there's a committee, the people sitting around the table talking who are representing the various parts of the project, they're not particularly middle class, you know, like it's sort of like seven out of 10 would not be, you wouldn't define them as middle class really. And also I'd say that the purchase of the project in the community at large goes well beyond the middle class. You can go to farms that are definitely not part of the, the middle class that have been massively affected by the project. You'd say the same about IDEP in Bali, which is um, the interviews I did for this book were, were mainly with IDEP because um, I'm a friend with Donnie who I interviewed and he, he introduced me to the others. But I'd visited IDEP before in Bali. Okay, so now with IDEP, it's the same thing. I mean, the organisation itself is packed with local and expat, but mostly local um, middle-class people. But the projects, who's, who's running those projects in the villages, it's not that class group at all, you know. When they go to a, a village in you know, one of the, the, the eastern islands of Indonesia, like Ambon or something, the, the people that they're relating to there and are working on the project are local people. One of the interviewees from that project who's in the book is also in that situation in the sense that she comes from a village. I mean, she's like on a trajectory into the middle class, if you like, but she certainly comes from a village. Her parents are, are poor farmers and, and so on. So the people that they're working with, like whether it's in Aceh or or Ambon or wherever it may be, are, are not, they're not middle class. And then also, even in the Australian context, like going and thinking of the, the Hunter Permaculture Group, I mean, for a start, there are people like Mark Brown at Purple Pear, who I interviewed for the book, who, who comes from, a, you know, like a working class industrial background. He was a union representative for, a, for an industrial plant. I can't remember whether it was the steelworks or something like the mining or what. 
So again, I, I'd kind of call him middle class now, but he'd probably not take offence. He probably wouldn't accept that. <laughs> uh, and there were other people, you know, I remember uh, Permaculture Hunter had a, a, very, a, a more diverse than you'd expect class mix, let's say that. So I think some of these local clubs are uh, are slightly more diverse than the people we hear from all the time, like me, you know, like you're part of the middle class. Yeah, and me, obviously, as well. I guess it's, it's not necessarily a critique. It's more just an observation that these are the, the social stratifications that exist, and so inevitably permaculture is going to reflect some of that. So the, the challenge of the work is to figure out how you engage with and deal with these stratifications and create allyships and yeah. and meaningful participation and empowerment for everyone who, who wants to be involved. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah, you want people who can work work with ordinary people, whether we're talking about a global south situation or or a rich country situation. You know, if you're trying to run a community garden in in Bankstown, you you want people who who can work with local people in Bankstown, and you know, if you want to be part of a global south project on permaculture, same thing. You know, and it really depends on recruiting local people who are interested and in, and in kind of developing their strengths. What I also say in the book is in terms of radical strategy, the idea of permaculture to begin by setting up prefiguring institutions and by doing grassroots interventions and so on makes use of the discretionary income of the middle class in the rich countries. You know, my analysis is that up to about the 40s, I'm following Piketty in this, you know, up to about the 40s, the, the capitalist class, you know, the top 1% to 5%, had virtually all the wealth, right? And and there was no particularly middle class, but certainly during, you know, from the 1930s on, the middle class grew in strength and the working class grew in strength in the, in the affluent countries and gained various important gains, you know, the welfare state and da-da-da. And the middle class was part of that political project, if you like. And what we've got now with neoliberalism is that there's been a stagnation of wages in the rich countries. But at the same time, the middle class still has a degree of discretionary wealth. And permaculture, I call this affordances of the capitalist system. Permaculture makes use of that. I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of, but at the same time, it's something that we should be aware of. What you know, we shouldn't be making statements like like Mollison is so <laughs> likely to have made, you know, like, oh, anyone can buy a farm, you know, you can just, you know, you, you can use your money ethically, you know, and da-da-da and set up an ethical business. And I'm thinking. Who's this we that we're talking about here? It's like, yeah, right. Uh, so, you know, so we need a combination of kind of, you know, in a sense, celebrating the, the middle classes, uh, parts of the middle class making use of their of their discretionary wealth in an ethical way, at the same time as being aware of where this can cause trouble and why, and why it doesn't translate to everybody and what we need to do to intervene in other sections of the community. What about patriarchy and permaculture? I don't think permaculture is any different to the rest of the environmentalist movement. You know, of course, feminism has had a huge impact on society in general, especially in those in the kind of rich countries where it, where it followed upon the student movement of, of the early 70s and so on, and has had an, an important cultural impact. So the way I, I characterise it in the end is I say patriarchy is contested within the permaculture movement, even though there are various aspects of permaculture in particular situations that you go, oh, that's patriarchal. You know, Heather Jo Flores is, is in some ways an annoying writer, but, but in some ways she's absolutely right about all of this. The response of women in permaculture, 
that makes sense and that people like her are initiating is to celebrate women's achievements in permaculture, to set up bodies in permaculture that can push that agenda and kind of support other women to, to make permaculture careers and so on. And I, you know, men who want to support feminism should be on board with that and not go, oh, what about me? You know, like, you know, they should go, yes, right on, go for it, you know. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is is the sort of the pattern in the sort of back to the land movement on which permaculture is partly based. There's a division of sex roles which is pretty traditional, you know. And I'm thinking of the hippies of the of of the seventies, you know, people who I knew well and was partly involved with. The husband or you know the male partner, if you like, is is out there doing the the work of establishing the farm, you know, and building the house and putting up the fencing and and doing the hard, you know, the hard yakka of, of the initial stage of, of setting up the permaculture farm. And, and the wife is kind of burdened with lots of housework and looking after the children and chopping wood and all the sort of incidental work that comes with that sort of rural back-to-the-land attempt at at least some degree of self-sufficiency. And, and then that can be translated into the, the husband becoming the sort of spokesperson for the politics of the couple. And then and that's very traditional. And and I, what I say about that is I, I think that there are other kind of options in, within the permaculture movement that challenge that pattern, you know, like so lesbian couples, single women really important in permaculture, single women who, you know, who may, maybe don't have a partner at the moment or whatever, and they're, and they're doing their own homesteading. They're, they're the teacher who's, who's running the PDC course or something like that. And gay, gay men and well, you know, like who, who are obviously not, not conforming to that pattern, you know, who are in a sense taking on all of those different roles in their couple. Permaqueer, you know, like I just love that. I think that's a, a great initiative. I talk in the book about how, about some of the more sexist aspects of Mollison's personal stuff, you know, like I found him very hard to relate to on account of that. It was the manner as much as anything. It wasn't, I mean, I wouldn't nail it. For me, for me, anyway, it wasn't nailed down to specific things that he said, although I, I talked about those in the book. I massively respected his, his work, you know, obviously, but I couldn't relate to him very well as a person, I have to say. Yeah, people are complicated. I came into move to the movement a bit late, so I never got a chance to meet Bill. Mm. Uh, yeah, but I've heard a lot about him, and obviously his body of work has been highly influential. But I came into the movement in 2014, so I did my PDC at Ceres. Wow, right. Yeah, and then was invited to teach into it. So I've been teaching into the PDC ever since. But I came into the movement, I thought, at an interesting time where I could see that there was a generational shift that was happening in the movement. And so a lot of the the pioneer generation who were very wedded to the works of Bill and, and, and David and this new generation of permies coming through that wanted to take permaculture in these different directions. And I think permaqueer is a good example of that. Mm. You know, at the IPC, there was a really vibrant set of panels on decolonizing permaculture and talking about how permaculture grapples with that. The questions around feminism and, and patriarchy and the role of women in the movement and the emergence of social permaculture as a really important strand of the permaculture movement in this time. So I feel like I've come in at a really exciting time in the movement where it, it's starting to blossom into all of these different things. What have you seen over this period, over the last 10 years, in terms of how the movement's evolving? There's two reactions on, on the one hand. I, I think what we're getting is a lot of young people who are part of the sort of lifestyle left or, or you know, ultra left, you know, in urban areas in rich countries 
detaching themselves from permaculture because they they worry about some of these things we've been talking about, like the colonialism of permaculture, the patriarchal nature of whatever, dot, dot, dot. And then there are others who are, who are still part of the movement who are going, well, we need to do something about this and make some changes. What, I, what I'm finding in developing country situations is that, you know, like I was talking to Ellie, who's one of the leaders of the Chikwuka Project, and she's, she's saying to me, yeah, well, we, we just feel as too much politics in permaculture, meaning like conflict within the movement. And, and, and just that it's a, it tends to be a first world thing. It's not that relevant to us. So we're using the term agroecology now, even though, uh, of course, we're all based in permaculture, you know, like, and I'm finding that, especially in this African situation where, where all of these people were using the term permaculture in the past, they're not now. You know, I have an ambivalent reaction to that. And I got that from Natalie Keane, you know, like Natalie Keane's a young woman who's working in Norway, and, and that, that was also her reaction. You know, agroecology deals with these issues of colonialism and da-da-da and gender and so on, which permaculture doesn't. I mean, one of the things I wanted to do through the book is to address some of those issues and talk about how what would be a good permaculture reaction to those kind of issues that people are raising. I mean, I'm attracted to the politics of permaculture for very similar reasons to you. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, hence the, the great crossover between our interests here. Yeah. But I'm interested in some of the earlier influences on your work as well. Like you've talked about the, the 1970s counterculture movement in Australia. Obviously, this is a period before my time, and I don't know a great deal about it, but I'm really intrigued to learn more. And also you've talked about uh, the impact of radical pedagogies like Paolo Freire, Antonio Gramsci, etc. I'll start off by saying, yeah, like I, I talk about this in the, in the preface to the book, but it's like, in the early 70s, you know, I was definitely uh, an anarchist and, uh, you know, I went, I went to Canada to do my master's in sociology and came back to Australia and I got a job and it was suggested to me that as a supporter of feminism, I might want to be involved in a childcare co-op and we, we squatted a building. And that was a really interesting situation because the membership of the co-op crossed between the sort of anarcho-feminist countercultural left in Sydney at that time and the sort of countercultural hippie left at that time. And so people who were involved in the childcare centre were drawn from both of these groups. And so there was a bit of a cross-fertilisation. And like our countercultural left was, was massively influenced by the hippies. And like in my, part, my current partner, Pam, like, you know, she was from Western Australia and her, her little group, which was about in the early 70s, called themselves yippies after the, that similar sort of tendency in, in the United States. One of the, the signature ideas of the hippies was that we need to get back to the land and move back to the land and, uh, you know, decentralise. And, uh, and a lot of the env environmentalist ideas that we now, we now know through permaculture were part of that movement, not, not just in permaculture. And um, I was very attracted to that kind of idea and that, that sort of direction. And when Permaculture One came out in 1978, you know, I just loved it and, you know, read it. With great enthusiasm, and and then I was part of buying into a property up near Tyree, and yeah, or oh, Paolo Freire. I mean, like I really like permaculture because you know he's a radical pedagogy person, and he talks about pedagogy for the oppressed. You know, going into communities and and, and trying to to have a way of educating people who are not likely to gain a formal education, and it's a sort of 
an educational process which is informed by where the community is at and works with them to improve knowledge. And and I've always seen the permaculture movement as a wonderful embodiment of that. It, like it, it fascinates me that permaculture is basically a huge net, network voluntary organisation across the whole world, which is actually training people in agricultural science. You know, it's like, fuck. You know, that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Bloody hell, you go you go to, to IDEP in Bali or, or, you know, like the Chukuka Project and ask people, you know, who are just local farmers about how they're embodying permaculture in their, in their practices, and they give you a rave that could have come out of Mollison's Designer's Manual. And it's like, this is incredible. I mean, that's a very weighty and difficult book to read. There's been a process by which these ideas have been made popular and become like a folk science for this whole community. I couldn't think of a better example of, of Paolo Frey's ideas than that. You know, I think the permaculture movement is just amazing in terms of that. Um, okay, so now Gramsci. See, Marxists have been very worried by the fact that the working class hasn't yet made a revolution in the rich countries, uh, if you take Russia out of that equation. But it's like Gramsci has this idea that, that it's partly because of the hegemony, as he puts it, of the ruling class, you know, the ruling like Marx says, the ruling ideas of any period of the ideas of the ruling class. And, and, and Gramsci runs with that idea. And, and he also talks about the grassroots intellectual. No, I'm, there's another word for it. I can't remember what it is at the moment. Where I, where I think permaculture fits into that is that, like, permaculture, permaculture is always evaluating itself in terms of its market success. Oh, we haven't managed to make a market success. Well, yeah, I, okay, that's part of what you need to do and would like to do, you know, in the current context, and that makes sense. But at the same time, permaculture is is an alternative lesson in how to run agriculture. The, the film that we made, the Chukukwa Project, shows how these people who, who were previously suffering massively from food insecurity and environmental degradation, how they cured that situation through using permaculture technologies and their agriculture then created sufficient food for them all to live really, really healthy lives. And it's like that's a living demonstration of the falsity of the sort of mainstream economic theory that only by getting a job and earning a massive income and having an entrepreneurial product that you can sell to Germany can these people possibly be re removed from poverty. Well, it's clearly not true. We can show that it's not true. And the same thing with Mark Brown and, and Kate Beveridge and Purple Pear in Newcastle. Like they're just running a community supported agriculture farm, or they, they've been running it for many decades. They're sort of in the process of winding down now. I took, used to take my students to that all the time, and we'd go around and, and Mark would show that you can actually grow, grow vegetables sustainably without using lots of toxic chemicals and pesticides. And then you didn't actually need that to grow a really good supply of vegetables and eggs and all of the stuff that, that their farm was producing. And so you just go on YouTube and put in permaculture or something similar, and you can see lots of examples like this. And this is a counter-hegemonic in Gramsci's sense. What we're doing is, is creating a, an alternative to the mainstream ideas about, about how the economy has to work to give people what they need to live well. We're, and permaculture is doing that. It can do that even in a situation where market success in, isn't a, a benchmark. This partially explains the success of permaculture's rhizomal spread around the world. Yeah. This horizontal diffusion model, like it, it has that demonstration effect that here's an alternative that works and is worth considering. And it's got this radical grassroots pedagogy model that's really emancipatory yeah. and empowering and, and brings people in. You know, that rhizomic spread, 
that's been an immense success, thinking of where permaculture started to where mm. it is now yeah. in a relatively short space of time. Those things are a core element of that. Yeah, for sure. I was involved at Newcastle University in the Master of Social Change and Development. In 2003, we got 10 African students who were from South Africa who were part of a land care initiative with the Australian government. They were local agricultural officers, extension officers, really, working with the councils and local government department of agriculture and stuff. And they came to do the Master of Social Change and Development. We set assignments for them in which they'd reflect on the work they were doing in the villages with agriculture. And what I suddenly realised was that most of these projects were unsuccessful. And so I then went over there, you know, like in 2006 and lived in different villages for periods and, and observed what was going on. And that led to my book, Rural Food Security, which was developed, the research I did between, say, 2003 and 2014, and it came out in 2019. Food security for rural Africa, that's what it's called. What this does in relationship to permaculture is that it promotes permaculture agriculture solutions for, to deal with poverty and food insecurity in these countries and situations. But it also talks about how important it is to get the project design right. And to understand what, what project designs can work is it depends upon a sort of ethnographic awareness of, of local social life and how, and how it operates and what people expect and want and so on. I mean, and obviously that led to the film on the Chikukwa project. And then in terms of Indonesia, but um, and I started going to Bali in the early 90s, so I had quite a bit of experience in Bali and I was always interested in the agriculture and I'd, you know, go out into the, to the rural areas in Bali and, and have a look at what was going on. And I visited uh, EDEP, the Indonesian Permaculture Organization headquarters in Bali, on several of these occasions. At the same time, in about 2003 to 2006, I was supervising a PhD, which was based upon an irrigation project by the EU in North Bali. Going there was particularly fascinating for a number of ways. Like one, one was that because this was a sort of commercial agriculture based on tree crops, there was a lot of permaculture design implicit in their, in, in their traditional, it wasn't truly traditional agriculture in the sense that it was for a local market, but it was sort of related traditional agricultural strategies, combining coconut palms as the, as the upper story with rambutan and citrus as the lower story, and then sugarcane, and then on the ground, um, sweet potatoes and uh, for food for pigs and things like that, and then pigs and, and chickens as the main animals. So that was really amazing. That was really interesting. It's really important for permaculture to continue its work in, in the global south, and that's something that permaculture can do well, and I think it's really uh, important when the market fails people. A lot of people in the global south don't have sufficient income from the market to buy nutritious food, so what, are the, what is the alternative? And permaculture, because it doesn't rely on expensive inputs of either pesticides or fertilisers or whatever, can actually deal with those problems. International aid and development, localization is a, a critical angle that is being grappled with at the moment because it's too much top-down delivery of projects for no gain. Do you think permaculture has a role to play in this space? Yeah, absolutely. The distributed network pedagogy that we've talked about before is ideally suited to an aid context. I think permaculture, you know, like through people like Ro Morrow is dealing with and also through EDIP and so on, is dealing with crisis situations like the tsunami in Arche and, and like the refugee camps, but also um, in, just in, in rural poverty, and, but also in urban poverty. Very relevant. 
There's a tendency in, in aid work for the mainstream view of aid to be that what we need to do is to get people developing a successful entrepreneurial plan and, and a small business and, and that way getting into the market economy and this way development can happen. You know, like this is like the mainstream view of things. And even quite leftist sort of aid thinking gets trapped into that paradigm. And I think permaculture's got the potential to go. Well, yeah, people do need an income, but not necessarily from their agricultural plot. And maybe they just need a, they'll need less income if they actually grow their own food. And, and because they're not growing food commercially, they, don't, they can't afford to use fertilizers and pesticides. So this is where permaculture can help with the solutions that they do need for food security. Permaculture can deal with ameliorating the impacts of climate change through swales and through changing your crops to suit the climate you've got rather than the one you might like to have. That's one thing. And the other thing I'd be saying about it is that's, that's where the anti-politics of permaculture maybe doesn't go far enough, you know. And I think the permaculture people that I interviewed that say we need to join up with alliances with other progressive forces to try and do something about climate change is, that, is spot on. You know, we do. Cafe. The COVID pandemic has turned politics on its head across our society and the permaculture movement's no exception in bringing up some divisions across the movements. People have different perspectives on how to respond to the pandemic, how to deal with the lockdowns, with masking and, and social distancing restrictions and the vaccines. David Holmgren, as we know, recently put out an article on this, talking about the pros and cons of vaccines specifically. And, and he came out with his position that he ultimately isn't keen to take the vaccine at this time. Ro Morrow came out with her own take on Facebook and she came out in favour of vaccines and talked about her childhood experiences with the polio crisis and, and talking about the impact that vaccines have in global South countries and, and how they're really helpful there. So this Particularly the issue of vaccines seems to be carving a big hole through the movement at the moment and people are pro and con getting to entrenched positions. So I thought it was really important for us, because this is such a big issue for the movement at the moment, to touch on this topic and to dive deep into it, but with love and care, because obviously we're participants in this movement and we care about the people in it, and to just try and unpack some of the issues that are going on. What's your take on this? I tend to agree more with, with Roe Morrow's position. And like, you know, I have the greatest respect for David's work. See, I'm not entirely sure that this division over this issue will still be important in two years' time. And that's because I think that the way the issue is going to be resolved is really obvious at the present time. It's become more and more obvious. You know, people who are against vaccination talk about, you know, the possible dangers of being vaccinated. But from the point of view of policymakers in government, the fact is that the risk of, of dying from a vaccination is like one in 10 million. It's not, not that huge. And the risk of dying from COVID is about one in 100. And, and what that means is that if, if COVID's let loose without any lockdowns or, or vaccination, then it's going to completely stuff up the hospital system. I mean, I'm just trying to put the policymakers hat on, you know, like, like to abstract myself from, from the sort of moral arguments around this and say, okay, let's just look at this as a political scientist, if you like, what's going on here. And it's like, from the policymaker's perspective, you've got two contradictory pincer movements. On the one hand, you've got 
what's being called lockdown fatigue. You know, that's very real. We recently had a jump of, we were up to 900 cases a day and suddenly went up to 1,400. Like after the long, after the weekend on which the grand final was held. What that means is that people are no longer prepared to put up with the lockdowns. The lockdowns only worked so long as the community supported them. We've got to the point now after two years where, where neither business people nor the community at large will continue to obey lockdown rules. So that's one side of the pincer. The other side of the pincer is if we let the, the virus rip into the community, is we're going to end up with crashing the hospital system. You could be smashed up in a car accident, you could have cancer or a heart attack, or you, you just need your eyes fixed or something like that. You won't be able to get a hospital bed, right? That has huge economic impacts on society. There's no way a government can allow that catastrophe to happen as a matter of intentional decision. You know, we're going to make that happen. You know, no, nah, they're not. In the context of this pincer, what they're going to do is to try and ensure that enough of the population are vaccinated so we, don't, we can open up on the one hand and not crash the hospital system on the other. Now, my, my guess is from what we can see now that that's something like probably 90% of the over 12-year-olds. Now, the fact is that what they're going to do is they're going to ramp up the compulsory nature of vaccination to the point where they get to that figure. They really don't have any other option. Like within the structures of the capitalist global economy as it is now, there is no other option. But what does that mean? It means, I mean, you know, you can jump up and down all you like and you can have all the demonstrations you like. They could grow to 10,000 and they could be throwing rocks through every window. It wouldn't make a shadow of difference. You know, obviously they would prefer us all to get vaccinated without compulsion. You know, that's not their preferred option, but they will compel. They'll start off by making it mandatory for you to come to work in certain industries being vaccinated, then they'll make it mandatory for you to go to certain entertainment venues. If we go to a place like England or France where this has already started to roll out, and we can see life has gone back to normal, and, and of course people who are not vaccinated are much more likely to, to get sick and die, but that's only like 5% or 10% of the population maybe. That's why I think that it's sort of premature to split the permaculture movement over this because you know, within probably in six months in Australia and, and certainly within two years, this issue will, will be dead. The people who are now going, you know, don't, you can't make me take a vax, will actually, in most cases, unless they've got an independent income, they'll be getting vaccinated. You know, like it's a no-brainer in that sense. I worry that we could all get very grumpy and, and head up about this and take sides, but I'm not entirely sure whether... That's a very realistic response. I guess all things are not equal. Like when you take the policy argument, the logic is very clear, but the society is coming from a place where you've got all of these pre-existing grievances, you know, the income inequality, which we've talked about. I think a big part of this is people being fed up with bureaucracy and hierarchical social organisation in general. We either work for or get services from or interact with all kinds of big hierarchical organisations, which are essentially authoritarian hierarchies that fuck us over. In the name of efficiency, they externalise the time and effort and energy required to get things done. And that this has run its course. Like, people are fed up with this. Well, I would certainly agree with that. 
It's a nature of capitalist society to control people in their workplaces. That, that's, that's how it all works. There's no other way for it to work. People with money invest money, and their aim is to, to make money through getting people who don't necessarily want to do what they want them to do to work in particular ways. And it's also in the school system, you know, like, and in our in interactions with government bureaucracies like the CES and so on, it's like, we encounter these hierarchical authoritarian organizations and people are pissed off. That, that kind of understandable rage gets hijacked, if you like, by, by people trying to resist lockdowns or resist vaccinations. The whole organization of capitalist society gets off scot-free. It's not examined at all. It's, oh, no, that's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. Unless people, I mean, you know, we had a society where people controlled their daily lives in their economic, maybe they could start looking at at these health issues in a more rational way. I don't, I don't foresee any society in which there's not the possibility of coercion if people are acting in ways that are damaging the community. I think, you know, even an anarchist society would operate like that. But at the same time, what we have at the moment is this pent-up anger, you know, and, and like neoliberalism, the, the casualization of the economy has, me- has meant that everyone is massively insecure. I mean, not only are they being ordered around when they're at work, but they can't be sure that they're going to have a job next week. Prices of housing has gone through the roof. The real standard of living of the working class in the affluent countries is under constant attack. You know, we know this, like, even in the most merely-mannered kind of analysis that the wages, the real wages of the working class stayed exactly the same. But that conceals things like the rise in the housing prices and rental and all of that. Yeah, anyway, so no wonder people are cross. What I would be saying about that is I, th- I think permaculture is like founded on this massive distrust of the state. I was interesting in terms of my interviews that that's not shared by a lot of permaculture activists. You know, like the majority go for a radical reformist solution, which involves the massive state regulation of environmental practices. So there's an ambivalence in permaculture, but certainly if you look at the writings of Mollison and Holmgren, they say things like, you know, with the coming collapse of industrial society, you will be able to rely less and less on the state to look after you. You know, like that's a common sort of thing that they'll say, sound grab, if you like. My view as a sort of, you know, as a gift economy anarchist, what I'm saying, about to say, will seem to contradict that, but it's, this is how it works. Like, I believe that Marx is absolutely right that the state is the executive of the ruling class in most class societies. So if you were to go to ancient Rome, you wouldn't find the slaves having much influence over what the state's doing. You know, like it's the ruling elites who control the state. In capitalist societies, that ch- starts to change. And, and from Cardan's point of view, the reason it changes is that capitalist societies inevitably create increasing technological complexity. So ordinary people have to participate to some extent willingly in work processes, in, in running the society as a whole, in order to make capitalism continue to work. And what that translates to is a degree of political power. And what we've seen in in late capitalist societies is uh, like through the whole period from the 50s to the mid-70s, we saw a huge increase in the welfare state and various victories of the working class. So at the moment, the state represents some compromise or balance of forces between ordinary people, the proletariat in the Marxist sense, but including, you know, middle-class wage earners in that, and the, and the ruling elites, you know, the clearly ruling elites absolutely depend on the estate to enforce contracts to prevent people from stealing stuff and making money real and all, and all of these things that the state does to make capitalism work for the ruling class. But at the same time, 
the state also protects the population. In the COVID situation, what you've got is the, the capitalist elite itself is split on the issue. You know, like let's look at the lockdowns as a, as a case in point. You know, like clearly the small business owners were massively pissed off by the lockdowns and constantly putting pressure. The other sections of the capitalist class are going, well, it doesn't matter whether you have lockdowns or not. COVID is a complete disaster. We need to do something about it. And this is the only thing we can think of at the moment to do to, to get the economy rolling again in the long run. You know, so they were split on, on the lockdowns. Similarly, within the working class, you know, lots of people are scared of getting COVID. This is it. Let's look back before vaccinations became available. Lots of people are very scared of getting COVID. And other people have got massive economic interests in going to work. And so they're pissed off with the lockdowns. They're hard enough for anybody, but, but certainly for if you're depending on a casual job and you can't get it and so on, then you're going to, you're going to hate the lockdowns. This is the situation we're in, and, and I, I think permaculture has the tendency to think anything that's done by the state is done in the interest of shady elites. They'd never use the term ruling class. That's too Marxist. But, you know, a shady conspiratorial elite, and basically the state can't look after you and da-da-da, all of this. I think it's actually quite wrong, you know, like it's like it doesn't actually look at the, the way the state actually operates in late capitalism very accurately. And I guess if you just reject the state and abdicate the field of democratic participation, as flawed as the system may be, then you're just leaving it for the regressive forces to take it over. That's always a possibility at the moment, yeah. I don't see that as a smart strategy. No. Uh, Even though participation is difficult, but it's, it's also necessary. As a gift economy anarchist, I don't think there's any future for the state in a post capitalist utopia. I think what the gift economy implies is that ordinary people will come together uh, as voluntary collectives and produce stuff and and give it to other people. Now, the state depends upon a a body of enforcers who are basically paid to enforce the state's will. Otherwise, you don't have a state, you know. And so in a gift economy, you can't really have a state because nobody, their arm can't be twisted in that way. You know, they're getting their goods and services from other independent voluntary collectives that are supplying it to them. And so there can be no state. You know, so in a, in a sense, I'm I'm totally on board with the anarchist no state utopia. But I think in in late capitalism, while we still have a capitalist market economy, the state's not necessarily evil. We have to look at it case by case and look at. And in this case, I mean, I certainly where lockdowns were concerned, I didn't have any hesitation, and I'm feeling pretty similar about the mandate. Like thinking about the role of the state, I look at failed states around the world and what life is like for people in those societies where. The state is either weak and really withdrawn or it's collapsed altogether. This is horrendous conditions for people. So if we're thinking, okay, what's a post-capitalist political order look like? Well, historically, the way that new political orders arise is through a period of violence and breakdown. And so if that's the end game, we're in for some really, really rough times. And I don't think that people factor that in when they think of what the next phase is going to be. Well, how, do, how do we get there? What's the transitional breakdown process? And so I think that's always been a, a missing part of the, the permaculture vision of, of, of what the breakdown of industrial society is going to be like. I have two responses to that. One thing that I'd say is what we're also getting at the moment is situations where we're getting gangster capitalism. We're getting a political order in which the state no longer has the monopoly of the means of violence, so it doesn't act like a state in Weber's definition of it. And so 
that relates to the sort of refutilization of capitalism that I talked about before. So, so Putin's Russia is a really interesting example of that. So you've got an, an elite kleptocracy that's closely associated with a criminal underworld. And, and it's like it's like it's not capitalism because people don't make money by developing a better market, more marketable product. They make money by getting on side with the right government officials. In a way, it's not capitalism. And so there's a real danger, if you like, in, in the current situation of collapse and, and, and energy descent that permaculture talks about, that we'll, that we'll end up with a refutilization. And, and in a way, feudal societies, at least some of them were fairly sustainable. So it's like, do you really want to live like that? You know, plagues, pandemics, endless wars, starvation, you know, famines every, every 10 years? Well, well, no, thanks. When people on the sort of environmentalist, parts of the environmentalist movement, when they, when they think about this sort of stuff, have this hobbit village kind of image of what it's going to look like. And I'm thinking, I think, look more like the Black Death, you know. <laughs> It's like, yeah, right, the Hobbit and the Hundred Years' War and whatever. Yeah, I'm really animated by looking at the collapse of the China-centric East Asian world system in the 19th century, you know, looking at Korea and China. There were so many peasant rebellions that rose up during that time because you're in a period of rapid change yeah. where the old order is in deep decay and there's nothing that can really be done about it. You get the rise of these sort of quasi-religious movements that are an amalgamation of all kinds of different ideas and xenophobia and stuff. There is an explosion of rage from below. There's some definite rhyming for what I'm seeing here. Like, I don't think we're at the advanced stage yet of, of that collapse process that we've seen elsewhere, but history does have examples of where this might go. I totally wouldn't rule that out for the, for the longer-term future, like 15 to 50 years, but I'm just saying that in the present situation, in the, at least in the rich countries, that's not what we're facing. Just to preface what I said, I don't want that to happen. No. And I'm no. totally on board with what no. you're saying, that yeah. in this I've, present moment, the state is playing a really important role in keeping it together. I, I think one of the reasons why permaculture people are attracted to an anti-vaccination campaign is, is an idea which comes through in, in, in my interviews that people, when you ask people, you know, well, what is permaculture? Well, permaculture is a system of agricultural technology, if you like, or, or a system of, of living where we imitate nature, where we learn the lessons from the natural world and so on. For example, you know, like Bill Mollison talks about how if we look at a monoculture, which is ploughed every year and comes up and so on, we don't find it. I think he says this, we never find this in nature. I think this is in Global Gardener. And it's like, so what do we find in nature is a polyculture, including lots of perennials and so on. So permaculture, in a sense, applies that lesson from nature to a permaculture agricultural strategy. In relationship to the virus and the vaccines, the virus is clearly a natural thing, right? It's just sort of like, let's assume it's not created in a lab, but let's assume that, it, that it, and certainly if, even if this one was created in a lab, but lots of them are not, it's a natural thing. And they think, but vaccination, that's a massively unnatural thing. It's hu a human construct. It's got nothing to do with learning lessons of nature. So now I want to challenge that. What I would be saying is it's just as much as a permaculture food forest, it's making use of causal elements in the natural world to come up with a, with a solution, a human construct, which satisfies various human needs. It's no different to creating a food forest in that sense. It's making use of human ingenuity and know-how to make to, to use elements of the natural world to come up with something 
that's going to look at, look after our needs as human beings. You know, it's no different. So that's the first thing. So then, so then if, you, if you question this further and say, well, what do you really mean by following nature? It, it means low tech. It means a set of technologies which anyone can understand. And so like relating to um, Ivan Illich's, you know, convivial technology, both Mollison and Holmgren quote Odom, you know, Howard Odom, an American environmentalist, you know, philosopher, I don't know what you'd call him, but anyway, like Odom has this whole theory that, Say, say you take a book, right? In a normal in environmentalist picture, you'd look at a book and you say, there's not much energy goes into a book. It's a fairly low-tech item. Clearly, you know, in a post-industrial society, that's quite sustainable. We could have that. Odin would say, no, because we have to look at the, the sun's energy, which he calls energy, and how it's contributed to making this book possible. So it's contributed to making this book possible, for instance, by feeding all those people who were sitting in school learning how to read. Um, it's been made possible by, by the invention of the Gutenberg Press. It's been made possible by, you know, all the other books that have been written that have informed this book and, and, and all of that. And he says, if we add all of this up, it uses up a huge amount of the sun's energy, you know, like. So conclusion, without fossil fuels, which are a store of this kind of energy from the sun, we can't possibly have a high-tech future, right? And that, David Holmgren always writes from that perspective. Like, it's a key part of his thinking when he's writing about energy descent. And basically, I think it, Odom is absolutely wrong about this. This is just nonsense. It's like when someone thinks that they're descended from Mary, Queen of Scots and, and King Henry VIII. I mean, it, it may be true in one sense, but they're just looking at the top of the pyramid of where, where their descent is coming from. And I think the Odom's the same. He's looking at, you know, like you could be dabbling your toes on the beach and you'd be using just as much energy as you were reading a book. I just think it actually doesn't work. You know, I think he's wrong. Odom is really wrong. So from my point of view, I look forward to a high-tech in industrial future, degrowth future, using less resources future, recycling, you know, like cradle to grave recycling, all of that. But I don't think it has to be low-tech. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of the technologies that we use routinely now, like my grandfather wouldn't have had a clue about that. No. And so, yeah, people evolve with the technology and their understanding and how to use it. This relates to something you were talking about before. It's like, why are people so grumpy about this? Why they're so grumpy about it is they get the shits because this technological knowledge is held by an elite. In sociological terms, it's a high cultural capital elite of really highly educated people part of the professional managerial class and so on. These are people who have immense privileges, you know, really secure employment, relatively good incomes, massively good superannuation payments. And not only that, they also run the school system, where as a working class person, you're daily humiliated. No wonder people hate them. And no wonder they think, oh, a low-tech utopia is where we need to go. In a culture where these people didn't have that kind of power, they were merely advisory and it was just a hobby to be interested in this, and they shared their knowledge with other people more freely. I, I don't think we'd have this fear of high tech that we have at the moment. Great point. It's totally nested in all of these power relationships, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about freedom, but we know from permaculture as a, as a systems thinking methodology that there's no such thing as absolute freedom because everyone and everything exists in relationship with each other. Is this observation something that's lost in some of these reactions? 
Well, yeah, you could say that in the in the sense that people are not acknowledging that their freedom not to vaccinate can have an impact on on other people or you know on the society at large. I mean, that's true. But also, I mean, I think they're quite right to be going. I mean, it's understandable that they that they're going. This is a government. I mean, the lockdowns. That was a vicious uh, circumscription of your freedom. I mean, there's no two ways about it, and we're still in one. Much as I think they, they, they were necessary and that was the right way to go and so on, I, I totally acknowledge that it's unpleasant. Yeah, this relates to what we were talking about before, you know, in a situation where, where people have built up resentment over, over the situation that they experience every day at work and that they experience in school growing up and so on, and then this comes along, they go, oh, you know, my, I want my freedom. I also wouldn't hesitate to say this, that, that there's a macro individualist element to some of this far-right stuff, which is like, you know, as a man, you know, you're like, if you walk around the streets now, who do you see standing together in little knots talking to each other without masks on? It's like young, fit guys, often industrial workers or tradies or whatever. It's not really masculine. To worry about your health, you know, it's like effeminate to be scared about whether you're going to kill your grandmother or not. That kind of uh, image of masculinity is massively offended by by what's required in this situation, which is putting up with all these annoying government regulations, as well as worrying about what might happen to your grandmother. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and, and it's fueled by fear as well. Yeah, you see, growing up, so obviously I'm not that kind of male, <laughs> as is probably publicly known. But yeah, a lot of that macho bullshit is. Guys are scared of what other guys are going to do to them, and so it's screwing oh. for self-protection yeah. Yeah, as for an sure. adaptation. So in in this environment where fear is off the Richter scale across the whole society, mm. all kinds of reasons, I, I'm not surprised that the macho response is coming to the fore at the moment. I mean, when you say fear, I mean a lot of I think a lot of people are scared of the vaccines, like. You know, I'm not impressed by the sort of anti-vax understanding of the science, let's say. My understanding of the science is quite different. But but it's certainly that kind of fear of the vaccines has been very successfully communicated in, in the community. You know, like I remember when we had the polio vaccines when I was a kid, everyone just lined up and took it. You know, like it wasn't even an issue. Like I think they sent a note home to the parents, sometime this week your child will be vaccinated against polio and we're... We just lined up and got it, got the shot. I mean, I don't think people on the left realise the extent to which the far right and and maybe and probably the Russian and Chinese governments are exacerbating these fears as part of what the far right refers to as accelerationism. And the accelerationist idea is that we'll cause enough social chaos that everything will fall apart and then people will go, you know what we need? We need a Nazi in power. (laughs) That's the accelerationist uh, viewpoint. They don't have any commit to, to an anti-vax position, but they go, oh, yeah, this is a go. Let's, you know, let's go online. And it's sort of trolling for the fun of it too. You know, let, let's really get up them. You know, we'll get up those middle class, you know, do-gooders and, and, uh, and those people who are moral, morally responsible. We'll have fun with them. Unfortunately, it's been massively effective with the, most, with the people who are most marginal and most likely to die. Do you think there's any... Do you think there's any convergence between accelerationism and some of the energy descent thinking in permaculture? There doesn't have to be. In a sense, there's a kernel of truth in both of these viewpoints, in which is that energy sense real 
and, and the, the capitalist industrial system that we now live in, in the affluent capitalist industrial system, if it doesn't get reined in, will collapse. You know, I think that's right. That's absolutely right. But energy descent can be compatible with thinking that what we need to do is, you know, like David Holmes said this himself often, that we need to try and moderate this, do it slowly, you know, like we not descent rather than collapse is the phrase that he uses. And I, and I think that's right. Why bring on collapse when you can have dissent? And I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent about all of this to, to a degree. But I think in this, in this context, I think what the left has to be aware of is that the danger of being used by people who are accelerations and not even realising that that's what's going on. Because the right doesn't say this. They, don't, they, they send you a Facebook bot which says, trust the science and it's got pictures of you know, people taking taking opium for a headache and stuff like that, and and, and you know, and you go, oh yeah, that's very funny, <laughs> you know, like, and and you think you don't realise that the person behind that that meme is somebody who actually wants the whole society to collapse so that a Nazi can take power. You'd never think that. You just think this is an amusing guy who's anti-vax. Yeah, and hence the the value of us unpacking all of these ideas because it shines a light on where these ideas are coming from and how they relate to each other yeah. uh, and how dangerous they might be if, if we don't have a good understanding of the map here. I mean, and there's no doubt, like, these demonstrations have been organised by the far right. Why did they gather at the Shrine of Remembrance? Because it's a huge symbolic site for the far right that's basically saying our ancestors in this fought in the First and Second World Wars to protect our freedom and we're letting it dribble away now. So join me at the Shrine of Remembrance to protest this evil plot. You'd have to be an idiot not to see this. I think that's a great way to finish. Terry Lay, thanks so much for joining us at the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Yeah, thanks, Ben. That's great. Love the title. <laughs> the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Just to cap off the discussion on the politics of the pandemic, I want to share some brief comments that I shared recently on Facebook. I put this together in a moment where I was feeling quite weighed down by the toxicity of pandemic politics. So here goes. The world is turned on its head. In the churn, smart people are more stupid than they realise, and stupid people think they're smarter than they are. We are all wrong. We are all only seeing part of the whole, but some are more wrong than others. We are all unanchored and angry. Absolute freedom is freedom as understood by toddlers. Everything we do inevitably impacts on everyone and everything around us. Everybody across the political spectrum is misunderstanding this basic truth in different ways. I'm sure you can sense the obvious annoyance in my tone. My point is that we're living through a period of such fundamental change, such chaotic disruption, where everything is up in the air. We're all looking for explanations. We're all trying to make sense of the moment and searching for grounding. So what I'm offering here is an invitation for all of us to be humble, to recognize the limitations of our knowledge, and to apply our critical thinking skills to our own positions as well as those of the people that we disagree with. It's an invitation to sit with our anger and explore what's driving it, rather than externalising that anger onto other people. And we want to sit with it so that ultimately we can constructively direct that energy where it actually needs to go. 
And it's not often that I'll quote the Bible, but beware of false prophets. So these are the things I'm meditating on right now. I don't have definitive answers to anything. What I'm trying to do is to ask good questions. A reminder that if you'd like to support the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast, please click on the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on, and also give us a review if you like. You can support the podcast materially with a one-off PayPal contribution, or by subscribing as an Edge Dwellers Cafe member on Patreon. Your financial support helps to cover the costs of hosting, production, editing, and research for the podcast, and is always very much appreciated. Thanks for joining me. This is Ben Habib, signing off from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Stay safe, much love, and all the best.